Before we look again at our text this morning, I want to say a few words by way of introduction about the context of what we're reading here. Exodus 20, as you all know, is that momentous occasion where the Lord God gives to this brand new nation his divine law, the Ten Commandments. In the previous chapter, God comes down to Mount Sinai and visits with Moses, all in preparation for gathering these people together in their newfound freedom. It was Israel's, if you will, Second Continental Congress. It is, so to speak, their Pennsylvania State House of 1776. This was their Independence Hall, or perhaps their Constitutional Convention of 1787. The difference, of course, is that it was not presided over then by George Washington or John Adams or Thomas Jefferson. This law and this testament was written and prescribed and sealed by the God of the universe. And it was, of course, the Lord continuing to fulfill his redemptive plan for all of mankind. And in this law and during these proceedings, if you will, it is God who chooses to reveal himself to fallen man. His character, his nature, his will, and his eternal plan are all wonderfully laid out to those who were initially created in his own image. Notice the last verse of chapter 19. It says, So Moses went down unto the people and spake unto them. And then it says, And God spake all these words, saying, Now wait a minute, who is speaking, Moses or God? Well, folks, this is the voice of God himself. In fact, very quickly, look down at verse 18, you'll see this. And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. So this, again, was the voice of God, and the people couldn't handle his voice. So yes, God also speaks through Moses. But not before. Not before God himself thunders from heaven what is our text today. It is a text of six words. Six sublime words God repeats 30 more times, both here in Exodus, Isaiah, in Deuteronomy, and in the book of Hosea. Six words, note this, that were always spoken at a strategic time. Whenever God's people were faced with a great challenge, a great decision, a great trial, or a great change in the landscape. Notice the words with me, and we'll pray. Verse 1, chapter 20. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God. Now, wait a minute. This is the first of 30 times that this promise is found in the Bible. And in virtually every single instance, beloved, it was given in connection with all of the events leading up to Exodus 20. In Isaiah 51, for example, God says, I am the Lord thy God that divided the sea. In Hosea 13, he says, I am the Lord thy God, from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord thy God who knew thee in the wilderness. And so it goes. So that you see, this statement, this promise, becomes Israel's great declaration of independence from the world through dependence upon their God. And yes, as is seen in all of its applications in Scripture, you will see why this very same promise 
is directed at you today, is directed at your heart on July the 2nd, 2023. Let's pray. Father, please help us now for the next few moments to open our hearts and our minds to your word. The greatest, the most powerful, life-changing statements ever uttered. And in all of scripture, these six words, may we understand what they mean in its full meaning. Speak to us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. There are six things I want you to notice in the text this morning, six truths, in as much as there are six words to this glorious promise. And by the way, don't worry, six points doesn't mean twice the time as a message with three points, okay? It just means you need to listen a little bit faster. Chapter, one again, chapter 20 again, verse 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God. And folks, let's do this, shall we? Let's consider each of these words individually. We'll begin with the first word, of course, and you'll notice it is the word I. I, after all, this promise was not given to these people in a vacuum. It wasn't given without a backstory. No, the people receiving these words had just come out of 400 years of Egyptian slavery. For over four centuries of that captivity, they were required to recognize, to revere, and to literally give their lives, their blood, sweat, and tears to all of the idols of Egypt's pantheon. Idols were everywhere in Egypt. They worshipped the sun. They worshipped the Nile. They worshipped the animals in the Nile. They worshipped Pharaoh and cats and mice and owls. And, and I don't know how you worship cats and mice at the same time. Who do you root for? But they worshipped all of them. The Israelites were surrounded by over 2,000 gods and goddesses. It's one reason they were so quick themselves to assemble that golden calf there at Sinai. It is also why right here at Sinai and right off the bat, God is going to set the record straight. I, he says, I am the Lord thy God. What's verse 2 say? Which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. In other words, note this carefully, after all of those centuries of darkness and slavery and deceit and weakness, after all of their lifetimes given in devotion and reverence to beetles and rodents and serpents and rocks, don't forget this, God says. I am the Lord thy God. I am the one who is about to speak to you my word, my will, and my wisdom. Which brings us to the second word in the text, and you'll notice it is the word am. Verse 2, I am the Lord thy God. In other words, not was and not will be, but right now and right here. And you know, folks, here's the glory. In chapter 3, when Moses was commissioned to appear before Pharaoh, he asked the Lord, well, whom shall I say has sent me? All of their gods have names. What is your name? And when God told Moses, you go to them and tell them that my name is what? I am. You understand, beloved, that he was throwing down the gauntlet. These people worshipped pharaohs and cats that had long passed on. They lived and they died so that men like Ramses and Akhenaten, they were. Or he was, it was all past or passing. But a thousand years after Exodus, God is still the I am. 
is a reminder of when Jesus stood before the Pharisees and he said, before Abraham was, I am. And it says they took up stones to stone him. Well, of course they did. The world always has. And I'll tell you why. Do you know what is really hard for the world to embrace? Maybe many people in this room even right now. That's the third word in the text. Chapter 20, verse 2. I am the. The? Yep. The as in the one and only. Oh, pastor, listen, God's not saying that. God is not insisting that he's the only deity in all of the universe. Really? Look at verse 3. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, folks, let me just remind you why God insists that he's the God. That he is the one and only God. And why it is necessary for me as a faithful pastor, at least, to declare at Beacon Baptist Church that the God of our text is the only God. Why, pastor? Why must you say it? Why does God say it here? It's very simple. It is because he's the one and only God. People say, but oh, aren't there many roads to the top of the same mountain? And aren't all religions in the end, pastor, worshiping the same God? No, beloved, they are not. Buddhists revere Buddha. Muslims worship Allah and they revere Muhammad. Humanists worship men. Satanists worship the devil. Wiccans worship nature and so it goes. So that no, listen, it is not true. It's never ever been true that everybody worships the same God in their own way. You worship the one that you trust, and you revere the one that you love, and it is the God. It is the true God who, through his son Jesus Christ, said these words. He commands us to love him, quote, with all thine heart, all thy soul, and all thy mind. Well, if you worship one God with all of that, there's no room for another God. It's all of you. In fact, do you know how dumb it would be for me, for example, to say all the football fans in here love and revere the same team in their own way? Ohio State Buckeyes, Florida Gators, Seminole fans, Alabama, Georgia. They all love the same team. They're just on different roads. Really? It sure doesn't look like that every fall. <laughs> no, of course people. Of course people do not worship the same God. Well, which one do you worship, Pastor? The God. The. The only God. The I Am. The God of this book. The God of Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and John and Paul and Peter and Mary and Esther and eventually Ruth. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I am the. Which brings us to the fourth word in the text. Verse 2. I am the Lord. You'll notice in your Bibles that this word, Lord, is in all capital letters. That's because it's in the name Jehovah. The word Jehovah means the eternal one, which means not only is he the I am, but he will always be the I am. You may remember what God says in the book of Malachi, for I am the Lord, I change not. 
fewer young people were in my office some time ago and they were paging through my high school yearbook, Martin County High School, 1976. And of course, they were just laughing, laughing at how, how much I've changed through the years. It's been 47 years. I had all this hair, these big Elvis sideburns, <laughs> baby face, freckles popping out. And oh, it was just so funny. I mean, they were just, ha, ah, it was so funny. <laughs> Laugh it up. But you know what? Change comes to us all. Everybody and everything is constantly changing. Everything except the Lord. I am the Lord. And you know, beloved, that alone all by itself is a powerful, it's even a frightening revelation to some but it doesn't stop there. You will notice that the sixth and the last word is the word God. And of course, that's the word Elohim. Elohim, God, is the plural name for God. El is singular. Elohim is a reminder that this same God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And if there is any question as to why that is important in this text, then all you really have to do is think about the fifth word in our text. Go back to it again. Verse 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord, here it is, thy God. Now, folks, you realize, you realize that it's one thing to hear, I am the Lord God. I am the Lord God, that is a fact, and that is a glory, and it is immutable, and it is eternal. But this is a completely different matter when that same God of the universe declares, I am the Lord thy God. He's not just Jehovah. He's not just Elohim. This is what he's saying to these people. I'm not just the I am. The Lord says, I am your God. In the previous chapter, chapter 19, look at what it says in verse 4, would you? You have seen, he said, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings. That's what a mother eagle would do. I bear you on eagles' wings. Why? And brought you unto myself. Pastor, I thought he was bringing them to the promised land. I thought the whole point of the exodus and, and the redemption and all of it was to get them out of bondage and get to that promised land. No, 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 no. If you thought that's the main point, then you missed the main point. God was bringing a people unto himself. I am your God. Do me a favor. Turn back several pages, if you would, to Exodus chapter 6, where all of this glory actually begins. The book of Exodus is the single greatest, longest illustration in all of the Bible of what it means and how it means to be saved. Exodus chapter 6 and verse 6. Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel... I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. And I, here it is, will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God. And ye shall know that I am 
Here it is. The Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now, wait a minute, folks. I will bring you unto myself, and therefore I, myself, God says, the Creator, the I Am, Jehovah, the Lord, Elohim, the Eternal One, I will be your God. This was unheard of in pagan lands, in pagan religions. Egyptians on this side, and all of the Canaanites before them on this side. All of them all over Canaan and the world built these things called ziggurats. They were pyramids. And do you know why they built them in all of these cultures and all over the world? They built these towers that would reach upward and upwards so that somehow, somehow, some of the men could climb all the way up to God with their sacrifices and their fruits and their offerings. And somehow man would try to appease this sky God up there and then the man would climb back down and just hope for the best. This is not what God is doing at Sinai. And this is not what Christianity is all about. Sinai is also a pyramid. It's a ziggurat of sorts, but it's made by God and not man. And in this case, it is God who comes down to man. It is this same God who not only gives to man his law in chapter 20, but he goes on to give him something else that was also unheard of. He gave to man his tabernacle, the holy place, and the holy of holies. Why? So that God could be with man. I am the Lord, thy God. Beloved, this is personal. This is relational. This is familial. As a father to his child, God wants to be your God. One of our new converts came to me not long ago and said to me, Pastor Laylock, I have to say that ever since I accepted Christ, ever since I got saved, a lot of things in my life initially just seemed to get worse. I got saved and all of a sudden there's more struggles. There's more problems. You won't hear this from the pulpit in Houston and a lot of other places, but that's the truth. It just seemed like there were more struggles. And you know, it reminded me of our text. Because you do realize that as soon as God, now remember, he's wanting to bring a people to himself. And as soon as God redeems and liberates his people, the very first thing he does is lead them down to Sinai, all the way down in the south. Do you realize that Sinai was actually farther away from the promised land than Egypt was? Just look in your map. He led them away from the promised land. It was farther and it was more stark and more desert than even Egypt was. So what's up with that? God promised them a land with milk and honey. God promised a land of grapes of Eskel. But here they are wondering about water. Wondering about food. Yes. And again, that is a lot like a new believer's life. Sometimes a new convert. It is not unusual. In fact, an old convert. It's not unusual for a child of the living God to go through deserts before ever reaching the promised land. And there's reason for that. For the people of God at Sinai, God wanted them to know that he didn't just bear them on eagle's wings for pleasure. 
or profit or possessions. He didn't, as a mother eagle, bring them out just so that they could have this wonderful land full of the grapes of Eskel. Folks, it wasn't just the land. It was himself. I brought you unto myself. I took you to me, he said. I took you to me for a people. I am the Lord thy God, your God. And so it is among the very last words of the Bible in Revelation 21.3. So you go all the way full circle now to the end in eternity. And Revelation 21.3 says, Behold, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Wow. Are you here this morning because you think that being a Christian, being a child of God, is getting your business blessed? Having better health? Getting a little cabin in the corner of heaven? That that's all that it is? You're missing the single greatest reason why God redeemed you. He redeemed you to himself. Because he first loved you. Now I worship none above you, for your grace alone I trust, knowing well that if I love you, you, O Father, love me first. He did love us first. And beloved, when he redeemed us from this world of sin and declared in his grace, I am the Lord, thy God. What that means is that even if we go through the deserts and the wilderness, even when we go through struggles before we ever get to the promised land. And that promised land is promised by a God who never changes. Even before all of that, we have him. Before all of that and above all of that, we already have the treasure. We already have the provider and the protector and the power and the promise that is in God himself. He's not just the God. He's not just the I am. He is not just Lord and Elohim and Jehovah. He is all of those things. If he was only all of those things, we would be trembling this morning and we should be. We would say like the Israelites, Moses, you speak to us. We're going to die if he speaks to us. They had yet learned that he wanted to be their God. He's not just Elohim. He's my God. He's my God. So that through Jesus Christ, his son, he can also be yours. I was going to close with an illustration from the Second World War. But David McCullough's voice has always been for me the voice of history. So I decided I want you to hear it yourself. This is the illustration I was going to say to you. In the early morning hours of June 6, 1944, 20-year-old Private Robert Hillman of Connecticut did a final inspection of his gear. As the C-47 he was aboard neared the drop zone, Hillman quietly chuckled to himself when he saw that the parachute was made at the Pioneer Parachute Company, located just miles from his home in Manchester, Connecticut. Seconds later, he let out an audible guffaw, drawing attention from the stoic and surely nervous jumpers around him. What gives? An agitated voice rang out. Still in disbelief from what he had just saw, 
An incredulous Hillman simply responded, I know my chute will work. How do you know that? A second skeptical voice responded, because my mother works for the Pioneer Parachute Company and her initials are on my chute. It may be the most remarkable coincidence of one of the most remarkable days in American history. Hillman's chute worked. He survived the jump and the war. You know something, it would be a comforting thing in the midst of danger and fear to know that your mother packed your chute, right? It would be a comforting thing that she put her initials on it. And when she made it or packed it, she whispered a prayer. That would be a help. It is infinitely more wonderful to know that God of the universe, the creator, bore you himself on eagle's wings, that mother eagle on the eagle itself to bring you to himself. And that more than just his initials, God has written his name on our hearts. And God has written your name in his house. Rejoice, Jesus said, that your names are written in heaven. I am the Lord, thy God. They are six sublime words that change everything for those in this room who believe them. I'm going to ask two questions and we're going to pray. Number one, those of you in this room who are saved, you've been redeemed from the world, from Egypt, if you will, from sin and slavery and bondage. Do you still recognize, do you still understand, do you still appreciate and embrace the singular greatest truth that God redeemed you and saved you for himself? That you don't belong to Beacon Baptist Church, you belong to Jesus. You belong to God. He bought you with his own blood. Is that still the central part of your faith and your walk in Christ? Because it must be. It must be. Because, you know, if it's about him and being redeemed to him and being his child forever, being down in Sinai in some desert for a while, it's fine. Eternity's coming. And Christ is with you here and always. The second question is for those in this room. Maybe you were a little, maybe you bristled. Maybe you're watching by live stream and you're like, oh man, how can you say in, in, in our pluralistic society, it doesn't matter, look, Egypt was pluralistic, 2,000 gods and goddesses. How can you say there's only one God, that he's the God? I can say it because it's true. Jesus himself, unless he's a liar, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes into the Father but by me. One way. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many there be that find it. Narrow is the road that leads to life everlasting. Few there be that find it. One way. That's the reason it's narrow. It's one way. It's Jesus. It's God, the I am. And today is the day of salvation for you. The Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, convicting you that you're not saved, that you're not a child of the living God. Today is the day. He's speaking to you and telling you to accept Christ as Savior. Our heads are bowed, please, and our eyes are closed with no one moving. I wonder who might say on this Lord's Day morning, Pastor Blaylock, I'm here today and I'm a believer. I've been saved, redeemed, bought. Maybe you're in a desert. And I mentioned at the very beginning of this message that in the 30 times that this statement is given to the people of God, I am the Lord thy God, almost always it's at a time of, of danger, of peril, of questioning, of change. 
He's wanting to remind them, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord thy God. If you're a believer here this morning, some of you need to just push that reset button and go back to what it truly means to be a child of God. That he's your God. This is family. This is relational. He's your father. Others in this room who have not yet trusted Christ, this is the day of salvation. Pastor, I'm a Christian. I'm saved, but I needed the message this morning. Who would say that? Would you lift your hands through the building? Yes, and amen, and amen. Praise the Lord. I'm here this morning, Pastor Blalick, and I'm not sure that I'm a Christian. I'm not sure that my name is written in heaven, as you said, but I'd like to be. I'm not going to come down and embarrass you. I'm not going to do that, but I'd love to pray for you. Pray for me, Pastor Blalick, that I could know what it means to truly be saved. Who would say that? Would you just lift your hand up really high till we see it? Anyone? All right, God bless you. Amen. Hold it up high. We'll pray for you in a moment. Anyone else? Join these. Don't be embarrassed. We're going to pray in a moment, have a time of invitation, and if God has spoken to your heart, I hope you'll obey his voice, will you? Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful, Lord, for your word. And Lord, for these who have asked for prayer, so many as believers who've said, pray for me, and some, Lord, as unbelievers, and no doubt some watching by live stream now who are unbelievers, never been born again. I pray, Father, that every heart of every person here and watching where they are, that all of us, Lord, will heed what the Holy Spirit is speaking to our hearts about. And Lord, it's overwhelming and powerful and beautiful that you have declared to us that you, the only God, the I am, the eternal one, the Jehovah, Elohim, that you are our God and our Father and that you saved us for, to bring us to you. May, Lord, this cause us to live boldly in this world, lies of faithfulness to you. Bless now the invitation, please, in Jesus' precious name, amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.